Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're going to begin with verse 14. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Lord willing, we'll have Children's Church next week. Uh, Announcement to the parents. uh, But uh, we need some more volunteers as well. But Mark chapter 1, verse 14. This, you know, for the kids especially, going through the book of Mark, this is Jesus acting. In this passage, we see about a man being lowered down. So, kids, I think you can pay attention quite well through this. Parents, too, of course. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. And before, what we're going to do is we're going to work through this passage uh, throughout the sermon. I'm not going to just read it all in the beginning. We'll, we'll work through it. It's exciting. Uh, and I want you to ask yourself two questions. There are two questions I really want to ask you uh, that, to think about as we go through this. First, who is Jesus? And second, what does it mean for us to follow him? Who is Jesus? What does it mean for us to follow him? And let me suggest to you that if you can't answer those questions, really nothing else in your life matters. That is, if the Bible is true, of course, right? Uh, if the Bible's not true, then, then those questions are really a waste of time. It doesn't matter anymore who Jesus is than, you know, a, a character, a fictitious character in a movie. Just leave right now and do something that would be more fun. That would do you better good. But if the Bible is true, oh, then Jesus is the most important person who ever walked the face of the earth. He did something that no other historical figure has ever done. That is, rise again from the dead. And furthermore, the Bible says that he is the final judge, and he calls us all to follow him. So, friends, if that's true, then what you think about him and how you follow him matter more than anything else. They matter more than your career. Why invest in a career when you're not fulfilling the most basic calling of your life, following Jesus? Those questions matter more than your education. Why go to school for more knowledge if you don't know the most essential knowledge, the knowledge that matters for all of eternity, namely who Jesus is? If the Bible is true, then who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him are the most important questions that you need to answer. Good news for us is that the book of Mark is written in order to answer those questions. And we're going to see a small part of how those questions are answered today, but I think you will agree that they are an important part. So, Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Notice how Mark summarizes Jesus' ministry here. Jesus announces the gospel of God. Now, one of the things you might not realize, and I didn't realize it until I read the commentaries, is that that language of a a gospel of so-and-so would be very common back then. Not so much common now, but it would have been very common back then. You see, if a king had done something great for his people, he would issue a proclamation, the gospel of the king, and, and criers would go out in the streets, hear ye, hear ye, the gospel of the king. Literally, gospel means good news. So it would be an announcement of the good news of the king. Perhaps the king had you know, won a major battle and acquired new lands with great riches. Or, or maybe the king defeated a powerful foe so the people aren't going to be sold into slavery. That's good news. Back then, people would hear these proclamations of the gospel, of good news. Jesus comes announcing 
the good news of God. The good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. Why is the kingdom of God at hand? Well, because the king has arrived. Jesus is the king who will exercise God's rule and reign. In other words, this is the good news that he will make all things right. Under Jesus' authority, everything sad will become untrue. This is the good news that God is not going to leave this world in the horrible mess that it is in. He's going to fix things. He's going to bind the evil. He's going to heal the brokenness. He's going to forgive his enemies and welcome people into a relationship with him. And we see all of those things beginning to happen in the Gospel of Mark right here because Jesus has come. The King has arrived. He is here. But notice that Jesus doesn't simply make the announcement, the Gospel of God. He also issues a call, a call to repent and believe the Gospel. And that means people are to not just take this good news, but actually believe this good news. Believe the gospel of God. And that means they ought, to, and they ought to repent. That means they ought to live their lives in light of this good news. To, to change their lives such that they come under the authority of this king. And friends, that message is no less true for us than it was for them. The king has come. Do you believe this gospel? Have you repented? Are you following him? Well, the next thing we see in the Gospel of Mark is what it means to follow him. And that comes up in chapter 1, verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting their nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called after them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, when people read that, a lot of times they wonder, well, did Jesus really just go along the seashore and, you know, beckoning random people to come follow him? Well, he is the king. He does have the right to do that, does he not? He's the authority. But we have to remember that Jesus has been preaching the gospel already to these people. So, in all likelihood, they already knew him and he already knew them. He's now just going back and calling certain ones to himself. But I think that the main thing here we ought to notice is their response. It says, immediately, no deliberation, no second guessing. Immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. It also says here that they left their father in the boat and followed him. Friends, following Jesus is serious business. Later, Jesus will say that all those who have left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake in the Gospels will receive a hundred times as much back. Jesus calls us to follow and to leave. But he promises us something. What's that 100 times back? Well, it's that you get Jesus. See, to follow Jesus is to potentially say no to everything else so that you can say yes to him. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Now, please understand, this doesn't mean, oh, I'm a Christian, I need to walk out on my family. That's not what it's saying here. In most cases, God is going to call you to stay right where you are and and live out faithful service to the Father in the context of you being 
a faithful husband or wife, daughter or son, or, or whatever you are. But following Jesus does mean that we have to be willing to. If you're not willing to leave everything and follow Jesus, then quite frankly, you're not following Jesus. You're following something that is a figment of your own imagination. Because the real Jesus has the right to call you to leave everything and follow him. Now, the Gospel of Mark could just tell us over and over again that we have to follow. We need to follow. We need to follow. But, but it doesn't do that. It does something that I think we will find far better and more encouraging. Instead, it then displays the beauty of Christ so that we see him for who he is, and then we don't want to be anywhere else. Peter, at one point, uh, says to Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of life. And friends, that's the kind of love for Christ that this book aims to impart to us, that we want to follow him because we see who he is. And then through the rest of this passage we're going to look at this morning, we see example after example of just why Jesus is worth following. Look there with me at chapter 1, verse 21. And when they came to Copernicum, immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Now, We'll stop there for a second. You might wonder to yourself, okay, I thought this was going to show how valuable Jesus is. He's just teaching. I mean, what, what good is a, a teacher going to do? But, but actually, that's the most important thing he can do at this point. You see, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that the one thing they cry out for in the Old Testament, more than anything else perhaps, is for God to speak to them. They're saying, oh, Lord, speak to us. If you don't speak to us, we're going to die. Jesus has come speaking the word of God. He's come giving people the gospel of God, the message of reconciliation and hope. And the words that Jesus speaks to us do far more good than any miracle or any act of kindness or compassion. His words are what's most important. That's why Jesus' normal practice, as we'll see throughout the book of Mark, is to go to the synagogue or any other place and preach. That's what Jesus wants to do. But you'll notice, even in this passage, that there's tension. Because the people don't just want his words. That's not what they think is most important. They want his miracles. And they want to show. They want to see Jesus put on a display of power. A little bit later in this passage, there's a huge crowd that has gathered. And uh, they're there because Jesus has done great work, so they're wanting to see more. Uh, but, the disi- but the disciples can't find Jesus. He's, he's missing. He went... You know, MIA right there. And, and they, they go and find him, and they say to him, basically, you need to come back so you can ride this wave of popularity and uh, get the people to follow you. But notice here what Jesus says in response, verse 38. Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I have come. Jesus has come to preach. He's come to speak words of life. That's why he's there. They are, whenever he's preaching, though, people are always amazed. His preaching has an element of authority to it that they've never seen before. And when he's preaching, you see the people asking themselves, wait, how does he speak with such clear authority? Where does his authority come from? And I think what's going on there is that when they see him preaching, they're quite eager and willing to engage in theological discussions about his preaching. They're quite willing to talk to each other about, man, where does he get his authority come? 
But what the people aren't willing to do is what is more basic, actually submit to this authority. That's the basic thing that we have to do. Jesus is preaching the gospel authoritatively. The job of those who hear is to submit to it, to come under his authority. And Jesus then gives us an illustration. As he is preaching, something happens. Verse 23. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us? That is the the unclean spirit. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He even commands the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Now, friends, I think there's strong irony in this passage. You know, irony is when it's, there's something that you don't expect. We see that here. Because, again, the people are quite willing to uh, discuss and debate about his authority. You know, where is his authority coming from? They're saying that to each other. But the, the demon here, the unclean spirit, well, he knows exactly what to do with Jesus' authority. He submits to it. Jesus rebukes the demon, be silent. In other words, don't say anything else about me. And after that, the demon doesn't say anything else about him. Jesus says, come out of him, and the demon comes out of him. The demon obeys Jesus perfectly because he has a clear sense of the authority of Jesus. And this passage got me thinking, do you know who in the Gospels renders Jesus perfect obedience every time? Who in the Gospels does that? It's not the disciples. It's not the crowds, and it's certainly not the religious leaders. It's the demons. They're the ones in Scripture that obey Jesus perfectly every time. And, and guess what else? They also know who Jesus is perfectly. Because in this passage, the crowd's standing around saying, Who is this guy? What is, he, what is he doing? I don't get him. The demon says, I know exactly who you are. Now, what do we learn from this? That demons really are Christians too? No, no, we don't learn that. We learn that having the right ideas about Jesus and rendering him superficial obedience is not discipleship. That is not what it means to follow him. Following him involves something more. It means not only that we respect his authority, but that we want his authority. Friends, stop obeying Jesus like the demons. Respect his authority, of course, because he's the king. But recognize first that he wants to use his authority for your good. And follow him because you love him. Follow him because you want to be close to him. Now, now what does that look like? Well, Jesus tells us. Look there at verse 28. And at once, this is after the demon possession, possessed man. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. And she began to serve them. Well, friends, this is a great picture of Jesus' compassion and mercy, isn't it? This tells us that Jesus cares about his friends and those who his friends care about. This older woman had a fever, 
And remember, back then there's no antibiotic. There's no Tylenol to bring the fever down. She's suffering. Jesus takes her by the hand and lifts her up. And the fever, it leaves her right there. This teaches us that Jesus has authority over disease. But that's not the only point here. The point I think we particularly need to see is that Jesus uses that authority to care for people, to take care of his own. And this story also teaches us something else. It teaches us the effect that Jesus has when he uses his authority. Jesus restores things to the way they're supposed to be. Notice that. She doesn't get rid of the fever and then just say, boy, I'm glad that's over. No, she starts doing what mother-in-laws tend to do, serve the guests. She, she starts doing what she's supposed to do. Friends, Jesus has come to heal our disease of sin, not to just then leave us in a vegetative state. He's come to heal our humanity, to make us into the men and women that we're created to be. He's come to make us true sons and daughters, wives and mothers, husbands and fathers, brothers and sisters. Well, how does he do this? Well, we have two more pictures of uh, Jesus' authority here. And then we'll return again to his teaching. Beginning in verse 40, Jesus encounters a leper. Now, a leper is a person with a skin disease. And don't think chickenpox. Think skin rotting off the flesh, okay? Leprosy is death working from the outside in. It's horrible. Now, other thing you have to know before we turn to this passage. According to the Old Testament law, and, and really just common sense, If you touch somebody with a skin disease, what's going to happen is not that your healthy skin will spread to their diseased skin, right? That's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is their diseased skin is going to spread to your skin. All the parents understand this. You have a healthy child and a sick child. You put them together. The health doesn't spread. No, the the sickness spreads. That's what everybody knows. And the Old Testament law um, is, is about that, reflects that reality. Well, Jesus meets the leper. And the leper says, if you will, you can make me clean. Look what Jesus does, verse 41. Moved with pity, he stretches out his hand and touches him. And he says, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. What does that teach us about Jesus? Well, it teaches us that he does something that no one else in the world can do. He spreads health. He imparts life. According to the Old Testament law and just conventional wisdom, Jesus should have gotten that skin disease too. I mean, he touched somebody whose flesh was rotting off. He should have become infected as well. But Jesus' cleanness makes the uncleanness clean. That's what happens. Uncleanness here is a symbol of pollution and sin. And friends, I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said things like, I feel defiled. I feel dirty. I feel so ashamed. I feel unclean is what they're saying. We feel that way because we've done things that are less than human, and we've been treated as less than human. And we feel a sense of that shame and defilement that goes along with that. And friends, if the condition of our souls apart from Christ could be reflected in our appearance, we would look like rotting flesh. And no one in the world would want to touch us except for Jesus. He is willing. He is the one person in the world who has the power with his cleanness to take away our uncleanness and make us clean. And he's willing. So follow him. Follow him. 
Well, now let's look at chapter 2, and we'll see another story of Jesus' authority. This is a story that everyone loves. We see again why Jesus is worth following. Chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned from Copernicum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was, notice here, preaching God's word to them. Again, Jesus has come to teach. That's, that's his favorite thing to do. Verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, we've probably heard this story before, so it doesn't strike us how really utterly strange this scene is. Okay, think about it. Four men are carrying a paralytic, trying to get him to Jesus. You know, he's on like a stretcher. They're coming up to the house that Jesus is in. Obviously, they think that if they get this man to Jesus, he'll be healed. But then they realize that the place is packed. But instead of saying, sorry, Bob, we're going to call the paralytic Bob. Sorry, Bob, um, we can't get you there today. We'll have to try again tomorrow. They say, oh, I know. Let's go up on the roof, dig a hole through the roof, and lower you down. It's not the logic I would have used. I wonder if they consulted Bob. I read this story to my kids this week, and one of them asked, how did they get Bob up on the roof? And my answer was, I suppose, very carefully. Although Jesus is there, so if they drop him and he dies, well, it can turn into a resurrection miracle. Anyway, the roofs back then would have been a little easier, not a lot easier, but a little easier to get through. They would have had to tear through the mud brick that that held the roof up, and then they'd have to break through the branches that gave structure to it. And they'd have to make a a big enough hole in order to lower their friends down. Now, Now, think about what it would have been like from the perspective of being inside the house. You're listening to Jesus preaching, and then all of a sudden you hear the the banging on the roof, and the roof opens up, and you see the sky come through. Today, people might think the aliens are coming, but, but no. Then there's a stretcher that gets lowered down, and there's a man on the stretcher. And then Jesus says, the, the, what, what comes out of Jesus' mouth must have seemed like the most outlandish thing in the world. Because he, he looks at this guy and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's thinking, Jesus, I think this man might have a more pressing, immediate problem here, don't you think? And Jesus is saying, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Jesus is making a point, actually two points. He, he's making the point that... The most serious need we have is not for our legs to work well. It's for our sins to be forgiven. That's this man's deepest need. That's our deepest need. Friends, I wonder if you realize that. In this crowd, I am sure that if we surveyed everybody, we'd see that that there are probably medical issues here that you would love Jesus to fix. And if you thought lowering yourself through a roof would fix that, you would do it in a heartbeat. Or maybe for you it's not medical issues. Maybe there are circumstances that you would love to change. You need more money or a new job or this or that. But but Jesus looks at us and says, No, the real need you have is for a relationship with me. God made us for himself. Augustine says that our hearts are restless until they find their rest with him. And what's blocking that rest is our sins. We need our sins forgiven so that we can come back into a right relationship with God. Notice how Jesus addresses this man. Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, 
Jesus invites this man into a father-son type relationship. He's saying to this man, I have not come to destroy you. I have come to forgive you and to call you to myself. I, I talk to a lot of people who are frustrated in their relationship with God. They think that God is not doing his part because he hasn't fixed something in their lives that they feel is an immediate and pressing problem. And, you know, in the face of it, it is. But friends, this story teaches us that Jesus sees beyond our felt needs. He sees our true need and he fixes it. And friends, if Jesus fixes our truest need, our deepest need, can't we be confident that he will fix any other need that we have? And if, we, and if he hasn't fixed it, if he's let that need go in our lives that's caused us pain, we can be confident that he's using that in order to get to something greater. Think about this man here. Consider that it was this man's paralyzed state that brought him to Jesus to have his sins forgiven, right? And as this man enjoys living with the confidence that his sins are forgiven in light of this father-son relationship with Jesus, how do you think he then looks back at the illness that drove him there? I think he'd actually think of it fondly. A wonderful, you know, paralyzed state that drove me to Jesus. He would thank God for it. And friends, when we're in heaven, rejoicing in Jesus for all of eternity, we'll look back on our trials in this earth in the same way. We'll look back at them as happy trials because then we'll see how they drove us to Jesus that we would know him even better. And friends, not only does this point out, uh, not only is Jesus making the point about what our greatest need is, he's also making the point about who he is to meet that need. Jesus reveals here clearly, plainly, that he has authority to forgive sins. And that is a claim to be God. Think about it. When somebody sins against, or sorry, when you sin against somebody, who has the right to forgive you? The person who you sinned against, right? If Bob sins against Sally, Deb can come up and say, Bob, I forgive you. No, Sally needs to forgive Bob, right? And everyone who's read the Old Testament knows that our sin is ultimately against God. Psalm 51, David writes, when he sinned horribly against other people, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Our our deepest sin is against God, always. And so what Jesus does when when he forgives sins is basically he's claiming to be God there. He's revealing himself as God. And you'll notice in this story that this then brings him into conflict with the Pharisees. The Pharisees realize that he's making a claim to deity. Notice chapter 2, verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See what's going on here. The Pharisees realize exactly the claim that he's making. But instead of then believing that he's God, they think he's blaspheming. That is, they think he's, he's making fun of God. You have to realize something about the Pharisees. We'll see them as we go through. One of the keys to understanding the Bible, or the Gospels really, is to have an accurate understanding of the Pharisees. So hopefully we'll be teaching that as we go through. But the Pharisees, they were expecting a Messiah. So they were on the lookout. In fact, their job could be seen as the Messiah watchers. They were watching for the Messiah. And everybody thought that they would be doing a good job at that. They were there to recognize the Messiah when he came. 
Now, they thought he would be a political messiah. And they were expecting him to call the people to strict uh, adherence to the law. In other words, to, to greater purity so that the Messiah would be able to lead them into victory. That's not really that outlandish. Think about it. The, you know, the idea that if God is going to use us, we need to be a pure people. So let's purify ourselves so that when the Messiah comes, he can, he can lead us into victory. That was their mindset. And there's much in that that Jesus would have agreed with. And they were probably sitting there in that sermon, before the you know, sky opens up, they were sitting there in that sermon thinking, oh, this guy's saying some good things. And then in the middle of the sermon, Jesus blows apart their paradigm for what the Messiah is going to be by forgiving a person's sin and, and claiming to be God. But instead of their paradigm for what the Messiah is changing, see, what they should have done is then said, oh, this is the Messiah. I guess he's also God. We missed some things. Let me adjust my thinking of what the Messiah is so that I can, I can follow this person. That's what they should have done. But instead, they said, oh, no, this can't be the Messiah. And they committed themselves to opposing him. Notice how this plays itself out. Verse 8. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned him, that they got questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, say to, the, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them. That question that Jesus asked has perplexed many. Which is easier? In one sense... It's easier to uh, heal than to forgive, right? And Jesus' point is that to forgive somebody's sins requires an even higher level of authority. But, but anybody, on the other hand, can say your sins are forgiven. But if you say to somebody who's a paralytic, take up your bed and walk, well, you, you sure better be able to uh, actually back that up and make the guy walk. Well, in order for Jesus to demonstrate he has authority to forgive sins, he makes this guy walk. Notice the common theme, though, that has been running throughout this whole section, is that he is the one who has the authority to do this. He has the authority of God. And notice what he does with his authority, because that's what Marx really wants us to see here. He cares for people, right? He heals them of their diseases. He casts out evil spirits. He forgives their sin. Friends, we're predisposed, I think, to believe that love and authority can't go together. We think that love requires not having authority, relinquishing authority. And that if there's authority, well then, by definition, there's no love. But if we think that way, we'll, we'll be just like the Pharisees and never understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus has all authority. That's really clear. But what's also clear is that he has all love. And that means that he wants to use his authority for our good. We must respect his authority. Come in submission to him and follow him because he will do that for our good. The Pharisees, though, provide us with a very clear warning. They tell us here that it's possible to see overwhelming evidence for who Jesus is but not believe in him because you don't want to admit you're wrong. <laughs> Think about it here. The Pharisees are they're opposing Jesus, but they're opposing Jesus in this conversation they're having with Jesus 
where Jesus is answering them about what they're thinking in their hearts. That would be, be a, you know, a crazy conversation to have with a person if they're, they're answering you based upon what you're thinking internally. The, the Pharisees realize that's going on here. And yet that doesn't clue them into the fact that, hmm, maybe I should take notice with this person. Maybe I should actually come under this person's authority because, wow, he really is above me. No. They held dogmatically to what they believed the Messiah would be, based purely on their own traditions, and said, if you don't confirm to our expectation of a Messiah, we will oppose you. And friends, Jesus won't do that. He won't come into our lives on our own terms. No, we, we come into his life on his terms. But friends, they are glorious terms. Terms that offer us forgiveness and hope. It's like what C.S. Lewis said in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, talking about Aslan, the, the Christ figure. He's not safe, but he is good. He is the king. You know, it's also helpful here, especially as we're talking about evangelism and, and for those who are trying to share the gospel and even think about, okay, where, is, where do we go as a church? What are we supposed to be as a church? How do we reach out to the world? It's helpful to realize that Jesus could have brought the Pharisees along very easily if he had wanted to. The Pharisees wanted a Messiah who would have stressed ethical living and a political kingdom. Jesus could have done that. He was, he was all for ethical living, as we'll go on to see. And he was very much a king. He could have couched the message to the Pharisees in such a way that they would have been his greatest supporters. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he presents himself, what he presents about himself is the very thing that he knows they will find most offensive, and that is that he's God. Obviously, then, Jesus isn't very good at worldwide religious movements, is he? He needs a political consultant who will, who will actually tell him how to get you know, the most amount of votes. No, but you see, Jesus isn't interested in building a kingdom on vague common ground where he can get the most supporters. He wants to build a kingdom on people who, well, first himself and his gospel, and then use people who have surrendered to him and aren't trying to dictate to him what he ought to do. Well, this passage ends with one more call to follow Jesus. Look there at verse 13. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Again, what's he doing? He's teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And this is more edgy than anything else Jesus has done. He's called a tax collector to follow him. Tax collectors for the Jewish people were, were scum. They were known as being dishonest, untrustworthy, uncaring. And Jesus calls that kind of person to follow him. And then to make it worse, verse 15, And as he was reclining at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Notice they've stopped saying things to Jesus at this point, right? Let's not say anything to Jesus or even think anything in the presence of Jesus. Let's go to his disciples. So they go to his disciples, and they say to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? But it was to no avail because, verse 17, when Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is saying here is that you don't need to get all cleaned up first and then come to Jesus. You come to Jesus as a sinner. And he cleans you up. He makes you whole. He forgives your sins. 
By picking the lowest of the low to follow him, Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you've got to come no better than these guys. And you know who that's most offensive to? To the people who think they are cleaned up on their own. The Pharisees don't want to follow Jesus because they don't want to come to him as a sinner. They want to come to Jesus as the guys who have it all pretty good, and Jesus is just going to affirm their goodness. But Jesus won't do that. They come as a sinner, like everyone else. And this puts Jesus on a collision course with the so-called righteous. Eventually, the righteous people, the righteous people, the, the good ones, the people who were known eminently for their good works, murdered a man who they knew perfectly well to be innocent because he offended their pride. They killed Jesus. But the irony here is that in that death, he, he gives his life over for them. His death is what gives him the authority to forgive sins. He died to take the punishment that we deserve. Sin deserves death. The only way Jesus can take our sin and forgive our sin is by taking on our death, and he does that on the cross. And this is why he can use his authority for our good, because he reconciles us with him for all those who will believe in him. Friends, this is the gospel of God. Do you believe it? Will you follow him? Let's pray.